All right, as I mentioned, if you would, please turn with me to uh, the first chapter of the book of James. We continue today in our series on uh, Satan's schemes, and we're going to be taking a look at verses 12 through 15. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sobering words from James. Um, These verses actually follow up and expand upon something that James had said earlier in verses uh, 2 through 4, and they clear away an erroneous implication that some people might have been led to draw from what he says in those earlier verses. He says again in verses 2 through 4, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" Now, it's counterintuitive to do what James says to do here, to rejoice in our trials, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter or meet trials of various kinds. It's more natural for us to complain, to feel depressed and despondent when we encounter trials. And certainly James isn't suggesting that there isn't something unpleasant about trials, otherwise there wouldn't be trials, nor is he suggesting that they should be viewed as good in and of themselves because they are not. It's not the trials themselves, but it's the effect of those trials that James has his eye on. Our trials or our difficulties, our hardships, uh, the sorrows we suffer, the persecutions we endure, these things often, or these things are trials to us, but these things afford us an opportunity for faith to be tested. And that's the point that James is mentioning here. When our faith is tested, we grow spiritually. It leads to steadfastness, and steadfastness leads to the development of other virtues. James doesn't say, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because trials are great, and you should enjoy them, and shame on you if you don't. That's not what he's saying. It's not the trials themselves, but the effect that they produce, and especially when those trials are met with godly faith and patience. In fact, these trials have a tendency to deepen our faith and form our character, James says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. And you've probably noticed this yourself because we have all, all of us who have lived life for a number of years, we have experienced our share of trials and hardships and sorrows. And when we're going through them, they are very unpleasant. And sometimes we even think that God has abandoned us. If he was really with us, why am I suffering this? But when we have a chance to look back at them, once the trials are completed, we can see that these are periods of our life, our lives when God has really caused us to grow. Our character has developed. Our faith in God has been deepened. It has become sweeter. It has become more resolute. And we know that God really is for us. So these trials, as difficult as they are to endure at the time, end up serving a very useful purpose. James goes on to say then in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then he goes on in the verses that we read for our opening text to clear up a possible misunderstanding based on the dual meaning of the Greek word for trial. The Greek word can mean either trial or temptation. And up till now, James has used the word in the sense of trial, once in verse 2 and again in verse 12. But from this point forward, verses 13 and 14, he uses the word in the second sense, that of temptation. And the English translation reflects the meaning accurately. He uses the word four times, in fact, in verse 13 and once in verse 14. Those verses again, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, we know that the focus has shifted with the meaning of the word in these verses when it uses that Greek word that can be either trial or temptation. And we know that it means temptation here because he speaks of being enticed, of being lured and enticed. It's true that God sometimes tests us, tests our faith, tests our obedience, but he never, never, ever tempts us entices us to do evil. And that's what James is, is trying to make very clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by the Lord. <clears throat> we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that God tested Abraham by requiring him to offer up his, up his son Isaac. And although the word isn't used with regard to Adam and Eve, there can be no doubt that God tested them in the garden He didn't tempt them. He didn't entice them to do evil or to disobey. But the presence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as we talked about before, with the prohibition against eating from it, was a test of their obedience. Will they trust God or will they not? Will they obey God or will they not? Likewise, in Matthew's gospel, we read that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, notice this very carefully. The Spirit led him into the wilderness, not that the Spirit might tempt Jesus, but that the devil might tempt Jesus. There's a dual purpose that's going on here. One thing that the devil intends and another thing that God intends. The devil intends to entice, to lure Jesus into sin. He's tempting Jesus. But from the Father's perspective, this is a test. He's not the one encouraging and enticing Jesus uh, to sin, obviously. But the very circumstances that he's led into by the Holy Spirit provide a test for him. And this is important to understand the distinction. And what we see going on in Jesus' case um, is a remarkable antithesis to what we see, or maybe I should say a complement to what we see going on in the first chapters of the Bible. Adam and Eve are tested in terms of their obedience. And where are they when they're tested? In a garden. In an unsullied, unfallen world in the midst of a garden that produces an abundance of fruit. And there's everything there to enjoy. Um, They're in a strong position. Their bellies are full. They lack for nothing. And in the midst of this perfect environment, they fall prey to temptation. Where is Jesus when he is tempted? He's out in a barren wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He's in a weakened 
position physically because of the fasting. Everything is against him in the wilderness, just as everything was for Adam and Eve in the garden. But Adam and Eve fail, and Jesus stands strong. Adam is called the first Adam by Paul, and Jesus is called the last Adam. There's clearly um, a correspondence between the two scenarios here. Adam is tested, he falls. Jesus is tested, he remains steadfast. So although God sometimes tests our obedience, he never tempts us to do evil. James identifies the source of our temptations. Again, he says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now, the tempter, as Satan is called, uses our desires against us. One writer has said, Satan is the tempter, but our lusts or our desires are the advantages by which he draws and entices us. Right? That's kind of the hook that he uses. That's something that is in us that he seeks to, to uh, correspond to with his allurements and his enticements. Now, think about this. We would never be tempted if there wasn't something in sin that we found to be desirable. If there wasn't some pleasure to be had in it, we would never commit the sin. When describing the faith of Moses, the writer of Hebrews says that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And the Bible is very honest about this. There is something pleasurable in sin. There are certain things that entice and lure us, and they wouldn't allure and entice us if there wasn't some pleasure uh, to be had in them. So the Bible is quite honest about this. It recognizes that sin can be pleasing in the short term. It can be enjoyable. But the pleasure is only momentary, right? The fleeting pleasures of sin. Or the old King James Version says that, that Moses rather chose suffering with the people of God than uh, the pleasures of sin for a season. It's, it's a short period, especially when viewed um, from the perspective of eternity. So, oh, pardon me. Keeps falling off today. I'm not sure why. Just my glasses here. How did Jesus get his mic to stay over his ear like that all the time? Nobody move. I think I got it in position. All right, so here is Moses, who the writer of Hebrews says chose rather to endure suffering with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And you think about Moses' position in Egypt. He had everything a man could ask for. He had power. He had wealth. He had comfort. He had ease. He could probably have had any woman he wanted. He had the opportunity and means to fulfill every desire that arose in his heart, and yet he turned his back on it to cast his lot with the people of God, even though doing so entailed suffering and many hardships. And so he showed extraordinary self-denial to do the right thing. And that's why he's pointed to in this way by the writer of Hebrews. Now, I think it's important that we understand that desire per se is not sinful. Desire may lead to sin, but sin is not sinful in and of itself. And again, I think this is very important because sometimes people will feel a desire for something and, and think that the desire itself is the sin. Well, it depends on what it is that's, being, that's desired and the means that are used to achieve it. 
but desire itself is not sinful. In some Eastern forms of religious thought, enlightenment comes with the realization that desire is the basic human problem and that redemption or enlightenment comes when we recognize the problem and we seek to suppress all desire and all desire is eliminated from us. That's the redemptive goal, such as redemption can be thought of in those forms of of thought. But that's not the Bible's position at all. Desire is not sinful in and of itself or the cause of sin, but merely the occasion for sin. Many of our desires are God-given. Some of them are life-sustaining, the desire to eat, to drink, to sleep. Without these, we would soon die. Other desires perhaps don't pertain to the essentials of life, but they contribute to the enjoyment of life. The desire for wealth, for honor, long life, sexual pleasure, the desire to see beautiful things, to hear beautiful sounds, melodies, harmonies, music, the desire for recreation, for ease, for comfort, for a sense of accomplishment and achievement, a desire to love and be loved, a sense of belonging, a desire for meaningful work, desire for knowledge. There are all kinds of desires that we have that may or may not be sinful, These desires are common to everyone, although not in equal measure. There's no sin, again, in the desires themselves, just as there was no sin in Adam and Eve's desire for the knowledge of good and evil. I'm so sorry. This is really annoying. Can I just use the pulpit mic? Desires that we've just described are common to everyone, though not everyone experiences all of them in equal measure. What some person might desire in one direction, another person might have a stronger desire for something else. The fact that desire itself is not the problem is evident from the fact that the Lord often promises to grant us the desires of our heart. For instance, in Psalm 10, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear or your ear. Psalm 20 and verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Psalm 21, 2, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Psalm 37, 4, you probably know this one. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 10, 24, the desire of the righteous will be granted. All of these promises and more besides that could be Uh, cited here, demonstrated it's not desire itself. In fact, God delights to give us the desires of our hearts. So desire is not bad, but it must be controlled. And that's the consistent teaching of Scripture, that we must exercise self-control. Our desires have to be controlled as to the choice of an end, meaning the thing desired. Our desires must be controlled as to the use of means to achieve the end. We have to achieve it in the right way. And as to its intensity. Sometimes what we desire is not wrong, and the means we seek to achieve the end is not wrong, but sometimes we desire it with an, to an inordinate degree, to an inappropriate degree. It's something that consumes us. You think of maybe a man who is seeking to grow wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. It has its dangers, but if it's pursued in law, by lawful means, that's fine. But if that consumes him, 
so that he neglects all of his other responsibilities in the pursuit of wealth, then that desire becomes sinful. So our desires have to be controlled with respect to the choice of an end, the use of means, and the intensity with which we desire something. Now, all of these things, I think, need to be kept in mind as we talk about the dangers of desire. Several passages speak of this, the dangers of desire. Listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. Do I notice a little bit of a ring in the sound, or are we good? Is that just my ears? I'm getting old. My senses aren't as good as they used to be. Okay. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John here is warning us about various kinds of desires, which he equates with a love of the world. And by this he doesn't mean just the world generally, like it's spoken of in Jesus' statement that God so loved the world. There's a certain sense that we love the world that's good and another sense in which it's bad. Here John is talking about the world's way, the sinful world, Love not the world, because all that is a part of that world, that fallen world, and, and the, the people who go their own way, rejecting God, all that is a part of that way of living in this world um, is, is uh, evil. He says, he mentions specifically the desires of the flesh. What does he mean by this? Well, he means living according to whatever the strongest impulse is at the moment, whatever it might be. Many of our desires are, are rooted in the body, sensations that are enjoyable for the body. And they are kind of categorically described as desires of the flesh. Many assume that this means specifically and only uh, the desire for illicit sexual pleasure. I'd say, no, it includes this, but it's much broader than this. And so he says, all that is in the world, the lust or the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes. Here is, this is a reference to um, covetousness. Always seeking more, never being satisfied with what you have, but always wanting more. I see something new, I want it, I've got to have it. And then he mentions the boastful pride of life as well as being a part of the world. These are desires that we have that um, are sinful and they need to be controlled. We're told that ungodly passions and desires must be renounced. Titus chapter 2, verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Desires often lead to theft, to quarrels, fights, and even to murder. James will say in chapter 4, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That word passions is the same Greek word that James uses for desires. Your passions are at war within you or among you. He's talking to a a church, a body of God's people. He says, your passions among yourselves are at war among you. And so you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot abstain, so you fight and quarrel. Peter speaks of sensual passions of the flesh 
2 Peter 2 and verse 18. Paul goes into greater detail in Galatians chapter 5 in a famous passage where it talks about the desires of the flesh. And in fact, we should read that just to give an idea of just the comprehensiveness of what Paul intends and the Bible generally intends when it speaks about the desires of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. help if I was in the right book. Here we go. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So the Holy Spirit in us is desiring one thing, and the flesh, our fallen human nature, which is connected but not exclusively so with the body because our soul has fallen as well, but it's the desires and sensations of the body that so often prove to be the occasions for sin. He says there's this conflict going on. As God's people, the spirit in you is seeking one thing, but your flesh, your sinful nature, is seeking another. He says, walk by the spirit, listen to the spirit in you as he's performing his work, quench not the Holy Spirit, do not resist the Holy Spirit, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, that is, under its condemnation. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You read that list and you almost feel like you need to take a shower. It's like, man, what a pitiful laundry list of human vices. He goes on to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to speak about the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is pursuing this other course quite different from the course that your flesh would choose if left to itself. Now, the devil tempts us by turning our desires against us, stirring them up to uh, our own destruction. He leads us into unlawful desires, unnatural desires, selfish desires. Sometimes he directs our desires towards prohibited objects, right? That's the, the, the gist of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet, and that word when it's brought into the Greek New Testament, is the same word for desire. You shall not covet. You shall not earnestly desire your neighbor's house. You shall not covet or earnestly desire your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, in this context, to covet means to desire something that rightfully belongs to somebody else. It's not necessarily desire per se for these things. I could desire my neighbor's house and I can make him an offer, Right, And if he turns it down, I say, no, well, I tried. But if it consumes me and I have to have it, or I have to have his car or something, his wife, those are unlawful, sinful desires. And God says, in order to cut off the opportunity to commit the deed, cut off the desire, you shall not covet. 
not even not only do the deed itself, but not even desire to do the deed. Sometimes the devil directs our desires toward prohibited objects. At other times, he directs them toward lawful objects, but with an intensity beyond all proper measure. So that, as I said before, we feel like we have to have it. I have to have it. Have you ever felt that way about something? Latest model car comes out, you love it. It's got rave reviews. And I've got to have it. That intense desire is very, very dangerous. And we should seek to keep our desires within proper bounds. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various desires. Slaves to desire. And sometimes you can see that work out in people's lives where they just it, it seems like they just cannot give something up that they know is bad, sinful, but also self-destructive, and they have become a slave to it. Again, he says, We ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So again, it's possible to become enslaved by our desires, our passions and pleasures. Again, he's speaking about the intensity of desire being out of all proportion. So this brings up the need, as we've alluded to, for self-control. For self-control. Let me tell you a good habit to develop. Anytime you feel like I have to have it, whatever the it is, even if it's a lawful thing, Deny yourself. It may be a perfectly fine thing to have, but if the passion is so strong, I've got to have it, it's the passion that's wrong. I mean, it's the, it's the intensity of the passion. Deny yourself. And it may be a small thing at first, but tell yourself no. Develop self-control. Begin with the little things, perhaps a seemingly innocuous craving, a second helping of dessert, maybe. Maybe it's that small, but you feel like you have to have it. My point here is not that the second helping of dessert is wrong. My point is to learn self-control, to, to, to put a, an end to these cravings that enslave us. And again, it's not the dessert that's such a big deal. It's the desire. But once, does, once self-control is learned in one area of life, it's easier to bring it over into another area of life. So deny yourself for no other reason than because you want to develop the virtue of self-control, a purchase you want to make some item that you'd really like to have. When the fancy strikes you in the moment and you just have to have it, and it's so easy now, if you're shopping online, to click, buy with one click. <laughs> buy with one click, there it is. You know, so easy. Maybe it's a good thing for you to have. Wait a few days, control yourself, reassess after a few days. But again, develop self-control. I think that fasting serves this purpose well. It serves other purposes also, fasting and prayer, seeking God earnestly for an answer to prayer. But it's also very helpful here. When we fast, we're developing self-control. And if we can be self-controlled with respect to eating, which is perhaps the most powerful bodily urge, we can transfer that mastery to other areas of life as well. The scriptures frequently speak of the need for self-control. Proverbs teaches us that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and without walls. Right, the walls were the defensive fortifications of a city. 
And if the walls are broken down, the city becomes defenseless. And a person without self-control is defenseless against the onslaught of the devil, against the, the whims of his own desires, and he is headed to destruction. Self-control is most necessary in developing virtue and, and works not only for our spiritual well-being, but for our physical and other well-being, financial well-being, and everything else across the board. Paul, it says in Acts, reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. He explained the way of God to him, the paths of truth and righteousness. This is what's right and wrong. This is what God expects of us. And you as a leader, this is what God expects. This is his right way. Now, exercise self-control to do the right thing. Deny yourself of the things that you would like to have but are sinful. He's reasoning with them about these things. And why should we do this? Because judgment is coming. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians not to let Satan tempt us because of our lack of self-control. He lets it be known very clearly. That's a, that's a tremendous source of temptation when we do not have self-control. He tells us to imitate the discipline of an athlete who exercises self-control in all things. And you know, if you're going to be a successful athlete, uh, compete at a really high level, like you're talking D1 athletics in college or talking professional level, you know, sometimes I think we don't fully appreciate the strenuous effort that they go to, self-denial in terms of what they eat and making sure they get plenty of rest. I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of self-control to compete at that level. And Paul is saying, Listen, discipline yourself in this way. An athlete exercises self-control in all things. And then he adds, they do it to receive a perishable crown, a momentary reward, something that only lasts in this life. He says, but we do this, do this exercise self-control in order to obtain an imperishable crown, an eternal one. In Galatians, Paul lists self-control as one of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is one of the evidences that the Spirit is at work in a person's life. He or she has self-control. <clears throat> in First Timothy, he teaches women to, quote, adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. He lists self-control as one of the required character traits of a prospective elder. He says that older women are to train younger women to love their husbands and children, and among other things, to be self-controlled. And then immediately, he adds, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Right? God doesn't have double standards. A little later in a verse we've already mentioned, he says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, I think that some people think of grace in an entirely wrong-headed way. They think of grace as kind of a license to sin. You know, I can live how I want because God's not, you know, God, God's just God. It's, his, it's in his job description to forgive me. So they, they sin with presumption uh, about God's grace, that God's grace just kind of excuses a sloppy lifestyle. But Paul says, no, listen, grace teaches us to lead a self-controlled life, to renounce ungodliness, and to lead a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. Some think of grace, um, and, or don't think of grace in this way, but we need to learn to think of it in this way. He foresees, Paul does, a time coming when people will be lovers of self, 
Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control. That sounds like the headlines today, doesn't it? <laughs> A pretty, pretty apt description of our culture today. There is something very beautiful about self-control. Being able to control one's passions emotionally, physical desires. It's uh, the last thing that is mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the thing that makes all of the others possible. It takes self-control to express love to somebody who's being very unloving towards you. Right? It takes self-control to, to express or to experience joy when everything in the world seems to be crumbling around you. It takes great self-control to be kind and patient with that person who is being very ungodly towards you. Self-control is a thing that makes all of the other things possible. Peter admonishes us in his first letter to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And he tells us that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, not his real essence or being, but in terms of his character, having escaped, he says, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All the corruption that is in the world today is there because of sinful desire. He says, therefore, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Right? This is, you know, if we were to hold a seminar, you know, Christian seminar, come learn about self-control, would not be well attended. But I tell you, this is something that is very foundational to what it means to be a Christian, to lead a self-controlled and upright life. It's not a fancy sermon. It's not a tremendously inspiring sermon. But it is something that I think we need to really take to heart if we want to live responsibly uh, for God in this present evil age. Jesus talks in many places about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. And it doesn't merely mean being willing to suffer and die for him, literally, but it means, I believe, in daily life that we deny ourselves things that we know he does not approve of. We say no to it. Paul talks about the need to crucify the flesh with its desires. To subjugate. He says, I beat my body, as it were, and make it my slave so that I don't become a slave to it. In another place, he talks about those whose God is their belly, which was an expression that was used to describe somebody who only lived to gratify their desires, who are always seeking pleasure. That becomes their God to them. But we have not been called to that kind of life. We've been called to a life of principled enjoyment of the blessings that God is pleased to give us. And there are plenty of enjoyments, plenty of blessings that he has given, the simple joys of life, the simple pleasures of life. And so let us be content with that and be grateful for them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we depend upon you to help us develop this virtue of self-control. We know that it is not in us entirely. It's only by your grace, only by your grace that we aspire to it and only by your grace that we can achieve it. For the world, the flesh, and the devil are very powerful and strong enemies against us. We know that the devil will use our lack of self-control to ensnare us spiritually and to destroy us physically if at all possible. 
And so, Father, we pray, strengthen us, fortify us. May we not be like a city without walls, without self-control, defenseless. But help us, Father, to enjoy and appreciate the simple pleasures of life that you've been pleased to give to us through meaningful work and employment, through the enjoyment of family relationship between spouses and parents and children, the simple joys of life. Help us to be content with this, to be grateful for it, and help us, Father, always to live responsibly with the grace that has been given to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would please stand with me for our closing hymn.